Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. So good to be with you. Let me just... Let me just apologize. I, apparently, between the two services, my voice is just deciding to quit. And so we're going to struggle together uh, through this morning. But this has been a special weekend for my wife and I. We actually, our wedding anniversary was yesterday, uh, 23 years, right? <clears throat> She's here on the front row with me. Um, we began our ministry, our calling was first realized in this part of the state. Uh, we actually pastored not too far from here on staff at a church called Avon uh, Christian Heritage. And um, your pastor, Pastor Kevin and Robin, were actually very influential in our lives early on in our calling. Uh, your pastor uh, spoke many words of wisdom. He was part of our credentialing body. He like, stamped and approved us to be ministers. And then he stamped and approved us to be missionaries. And we were sent out early in the early 2000s to overseas as uh, missionaries to uh, a communist closed nation in Southeast Asia. Uh, and we worked there for nearly a decade, pioneering the church, uh, the underground church in secret in a persecuted place. And then the Lord miraculously, very clearly directed us to Alaska. And I'll be honest, it didn't make sense to us, but it makes more sense now. Um, and what we were doing in Asia was we were basically working with the underground church to raise up disciples that would not just know and love God, but that would then be able to tell their friends, their neighbors, their co-workers about Jesus as well. Because in this particular country, they can't gather like this in public. They can't have a, a church fellowship gathering. And although this is important and incredibly valuable, this is not all that Christianity has to offer. In fact, the relationship with Christ and the opportunity to be a community and to go around the world is, is essentially why we gather on a Sunday Sunday morning together to be encouraged to take the good news of Christ around. And so we saw God doing that in Southeast Asia, and he was preparing us as we learned how to essentially start a discipleship movement. And then nearly a decade ago, he talked to us about going to Alaska. And so we went and we pioneered essentially the exact same thing. We started working on the university campuses, raising up disciples through Chi Alpha. If many of you know what those that is, it's a university discipleship ministry with the intention of sending and mobilizing disciple makers into every village in Alaska. Alaska literally has hundreds of these tiny rural communities of 300, 400 people, and there's over 100 in Alaska without any pastor, without any missionary, without any Christian community of any kind. And we believe that God has called us to raise up a bunch of young, God-fearing, disciple-making people to change the state. We believe that we can have a Christian discipleship community in every village in Alaska. Over the last 10 years, God has done miraculous things. We started on two campuses that has essentially exploded. It's turned into multiple church, house churches across villages and rural communities. Uh, we've, uh, you've helped us uh, see close to 500 people make decisions for Christ. We've trained and equipped almost 400 young men and women to become disciple makers in the state, which means that they're graduating 
graduating from college and going into the local churches to be able to make disciples as they continue to go. But we've also raised up nearly 40 ministers in Alaska, and we've sent missionaries all over the world. In fact, this summer we sent one of these young men, the guy on the far left, to Mongolia to respond to a call to what God has for him there. And we've sent people to Russia and India and El Salvador. And the reason I'm telling you this, this is my snippet of, of kind of the what God has been doing in Alaska, is because you've been a part of it all along the way. This church, your pastor, invested in our family over 20 years ago, and you've continued to be partners. And so what I want you to understand is that this church has a hand in everything that's going on in Alaska, but not just Alaska. It's been spread out around the world. That Alaska has been a genesis to, to send people around. And so I want to begin this morning by simply saying thank you. Thank you for helping us do what God has called us to do and be part of the great church. We're going to start this morning with prayer. Uh, Jesus. Jesus. God, we've gathered here because we want to have an encounter with you. Lord, we want to be in your presence and we invite that your spirit not just be amongst us, but be in our lives. God, we want to hear your words, not my words or some stories, but Lord Jesus, we want you to speak to us. God, allow our hearts and minds to be listening, to be open, to be tender and soft to what you would talk to us about and encourage us and teach us how to live. Jesus, we love you this morning, and if you're not here with us in this midst, we don't want to go through a routine. Lord Jesus, be with us. In your precious name, amen. We're going to start this morning, uh, before we jump into scripture, uh, with a story that I think will lay the foundation for the catalyst of what we're talking about uh, today. When we were younger, much younger, about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, we were in Southeast Asia and we were working. And the way we were there was we had secular jobs because visas as missionaries or ministers were not possible. It's closed. And so I worked as an NGO director. Basically, I ran a humanitarian aid organization that did a lot of different things. Education was a piece. Medical care was another. And one of the jobs that we did every year was we would bring in U.S. doctors and nurses and pharmacists to travel around rural communities in this nation and basically do well-child care checkups as well as providing health care for these extreme rural communities. And so that meant like two weeks of just driving around this nation with a large caravan and, and sitting down for a day in each village and whoever would come we'd be able to work with and, and be able to help them physically but also trying to open the door for some of our underground church planners in those locations. Well, as we were coming to the end of our time doing these trips, we would always stop by this village called Nyotliang. Nyotliang literally means the top of the mountain. It's, it's kind of like this miserable place in this nation. There's not enough water. The, the, there's no jobs. The agriculture is really bad because you're up on the mountain. And so it's a place of incredible poverty and sickness. 
when they, uh, in this particular town, the government decided that it'd be a good location for a boarding school, which is the place that we were working at. These school buildings are actually not, they're kind of like boarding where they, these kids would sleep and stay. And, and every time we'd come to Nyatliang, we would know that we were going to spend an extra day or two to try to take care of these kids. And then we would open up the clinics to the surrounding communities and allow them to come and, and get medical care. And so I'm going from building to building in this small school complex. I'm trying to be the interpreter between our doctors, our nurses, and our pharmacists. And we're making sure everything is going well. And as I'm going across the courtyard, I look up across one of these hills in the background, and there's this cattle trail coming down the hill. And I notice that there appears to be a single person walking down this trail, and they look like they're carrying something. But I'm busy and off to the next building I go and I'm working on this project with like making sure we get the right medicine to the right people and all of a sudden one of my staff comes and they grab me and they say, hey, you have to go to this building because there's a situation you're going to need to get involved with. And I walk into one of these buildings and there's no electricity and it's dark and it takes a minute for my eyes to adjust and as I look Next to the American doctor, the Lao doctor, there's this 17-year-old girl, the same person I'd seen coming down that cattle trail, and she's holding this infant. The infant is incredibly sick. You can tell there's something wrong. And as we discuss the conversation, I'm trying to get an idea of what's going on, but the doctor keeps telling me there's nothing we can do. This child has to get to a real hospital. Essentially, this infant was six or seven months old and weighed less than six pounds at this particular time. The child was starving. He had pneumonia. The mother wasn't producing milk. And so they would take rice and they would grind it up with a mortar and pestle, add a little bit of water, and literally drop feed this child. And the child was starving and dying in front of our eyes. I turned to this woman and I looked at her and in her language I spoke and I said, listen, we have to leave right now. We've got a car out in the courtyard. It's going to be 13 hours, but we can get to the capital city. We can help your baby. We cannot help your baby here, but we can save it if we can get it there. I think there's a picture of this child. So I don't know if you can notice, but up by the hand, the wrinkles of the skin on this child's leg, literally starving in front of us. Six-month-old baby weighing just around six pounds. This woman looked at me and her young little face, she shook her head and said, no, I can't go. I've walked a couple of hours from our village. My husband doesn't even know that I'm here. He's working the mountain rice fields. I cannot leave. I cannot go. I explained again, this child is going to die if we do not get him help right now. She shook her head. She stood up, gathered her child in her arms, walked out of the big building and began walking across the courtyard. I came to the edge of the door and tears began streaming down my face. My own youngest son was not much older than this little guy. And I kept thinking, how is it fair? How is it right that he has more food to eat than he knows what to do with? How is it okay that he has a, a doctor's visit right down the street? And this child, a child of God, one, a person that God created and loved is going to die and we can't do anything about it. 
the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of my heart in that moment and put an idea in my mind. I ran across the courtyard, grabbed her by the shoulder, and I had a bit of money in my hand, and I put it in her hand, and I said, listen, in three days, we will be in the capital city. In three days, we will meet you there. You bring this child. You get your husband. You meet us there. We will take care of him. We will pay his medical bills. We'll do whatever has to be done because he's worth it. He has value. He can be saved. She took the money, put it in the folds of her clothes, and continued on the trail. And I remember watching as she went over the horizon, tears streaming down. The next three days were three of the toughest days of my life. This story explains a simple principle, a simple fact. You see, stepping in and intervening in a situation like this is not heroic, it's normal. There's not a person in this room that wouldn't do the exact same thing. If you recognize that someone is of suffering and about to die, how can we not engage? How can we not intervene? How can we not do something about it? The problem is, church, that the world is starving and suffering and dying spiritually. And we tend to not want to do anything about it. How many of us believe that we have a soul? Right? We have a soul. The problem is, is I would strongly disagree with you on that understanding. I do not believe that we have a soul. To say that we have a soul indicates that we are the body, that we are the flesh. I would say that our soul has a body because the soul lasts an eternity where our body only lasts 70 or 80 or 90 years. And we are not made up of this physical dust and ashes. We are made up of the spirit. And if lives are worth sacrificing and suffering to save a child like this in this situation, how much more should we be desperate to save those that are spiritually lost and dying? How much more should we be willing to intervene on their behalf? This morning, we're going to look at a text out of 2 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to read a little story. It's not, we're going to read a story about a little-known lady named Rizpah. And what I'm hoping is, church, is that by looking at this story, we will be able to understand how she acted and behaved and loved those that were dead and lost in her lives so that we will understand how to love and behave to rescue those that are spiritually dead and lost in ours. You with me? Okay, come on. You sure? All right, all right. So let's begin reading. I'll give you some context as we go. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 3. 2 Samuel 21, 1 to 3, it says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in the zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make an atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? 
So this story doesn't begin right here. It actually begins way back in the book called Joshua in chapter 9 when Joshua was leading the people of Israel to go into the promised land. He's about to lead them to take hold of of Israel and, and fulfill the promises that he'd given to Moses and to Abraham and the people of Israel of before. And as they go into the land, they start to have this great success and the people that were living there were in fear and this group called the Amorites devised a plan to figure out how Israel was not going to remove them from their promised land. And so they sent emissaries dressed in old clothes on camels, and they tricked Joshua and the leaders of Israel to believe that the Amorites did not live in the promised land. As a result, Joshua made a treaty with them, and once it was discovered that they were actually in the promised land, they had to uphold their treaty. So instead of annihilating them and removing them from the land, they allowed them to stay and serve the people of Israel. So this is the background, and all of a sudden, what we're seeing here is David is having a problem. He's the second king of Israel. He's new in his role, and for three years, there's a famine. And what's going on in this moment is God is revealing the fact that there is a problem. There is something that needs to be made right before the blessings of the Lord can be uh, fulfilled on the people of Israel. And he discovers that Saul, the first king of Israel, had essentially committed a genocide on the people of Gibeon, and they needed to do something about it. Let's continue reading. Verse 5, it says, They said to the king, this is the Gibeonites, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. We're going to skip to verse 8. It says, The king took two sons of Rizba, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armani, and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Moholathite. Say that five times fast. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Verse 10. This is where it gets interesting. Then Rizba, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizba, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square of Beth-shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul of Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. So let me just catch you up, and we're going to step into this next few points of what we got going on. So David essentially recognizes that something needs to be done. He asks the Gibeonites, how can we make this right so that the blessing of the Lord can come back upon the nation of Israel? And the reply is, is we want seven sons of Saul. 
Now, in our American understanding of justice, this seems absolutely radically important, inappropriate, right? All of a sudden, we have pictures of children being taken out to be hung and displayed as trophies, and that is a repugnancy to us. Let me just clear your minds on this simple idea that, number one, these were not children, and most scholars believe that these men were actually a participating or a participating part of the genocide that happened against the Gibeonites, which means they are not innocent in this. They are actually receiving the just penalty for the crimes that they committed. But what's more important than what we just discussed is what this mother did for her boys. This woman named Rizpah is recorded in history in the Bible because her actions created a something to happen that wouldn't have happened if she had not intervened on their behalf. And I believe that by looking at how this mother loved her boys who were dead will teach us how to love and treat those that are spiritually dead in our lives today. And if we do that, I believe we can see something unique happen in their lives as well. So let's look at this. What's the first thing that Rizpah did for her boys? It's pretty obvious. It's pretty simple. But she simply loved them. We see that she loved these boys more than you can imagine. It doesn't say it in Scripture, but we can see from her actions that she had an intense and compelling love for her sons. And just because her boys were dead, it did not mean that she stopped loving them. They were dead, decaying corpses, but she continued. And even though she would receive no love in return, she didn't stop. It wasn't easy to love them as they literally rotted and decayed in front of her. And how many of you know that it's not easy to love those that are spiritually lost? How many know that there are people in our lives, our friends, our family, our neighbors, our coworkers, that are difficult to love? It's not easy to embrace them and cherish them when they return no love, right? When we were in uh, Asia, one of the people we were working with was an, a people group called the Aka. And at this particular time in history, we knew that there was not a, a known Aka believer. So there's no one in the history that we're aware of from this country in this tribal group that has ever surrendered their life to Christ. And so we made it a priority to go and visit these Aka villages and begin to tell them about a God that loves them. To make a long story short, I started dreading going to these villages because every time we went there, I knew that there was going to be a sequence of events. We were going to hike 10, 12 hours in the hot humidity of Southeast Asia. We were going to roll into a dusty jungle village where there was all sorts of garbage and unique smells. We were going to be invited into the, the headman's village or hut, and we were going to be offered dinner. Now, you think that this would be good, but the dinner that we were given every single time was boiled chicken. None of you ever had just straight up boiled chicken, but it's not good, right? Let alone a chicken that's been boiled the day before, and it's slimy, and it's gooey, and it's wonderful, right? Come on, my friend. And so as usually the leader of the group, I would be given the prized possession or the prized pieces of this chicken every single time in my plate. So we're sitting cross-legged on the floor, a little bowl in front of me, and I would be handed the, the pieces that the head man would normally eat, which was the head, the neck, and the scaly feet of this chicken. And the first time that this happened, I remember sitting there thinking, there must be some mistake. I'd like a breast and a thigh, like this would be great. 
But instead, I look over at one of our Lao friends. His name was Kaman, and I said, what's the story? He goes, you got to eat it, man. This is the good stuff. This is the stuff that has the flavor and the cartilage and, and all of those things. And so the skin was still on. There were some feathers hanging out. The rubbery comb was on top. And I remember just peeling the skin off with my teeth and eating at it. And after a little bit of time, I started to not enjoy it, but I started to discover that I could make a game out of it. <laughs> so every vertebrae I cleaned off, I laid back on my plate, and I started to recreate the skeleton of a chicken neck. And I finally get the skull completely picked clean, and I'm holding it by the beak, and I'm so excited. I'm going to complete my sculpture on my plate. And as I set it down, Kaman gets my attention, and he shakes his head. He says, you're not done. I look at him, I say, excuse me. He goes, the eyes. You have to eat the eyes. And so I take the skull and I put it in my mouth and I suck the eyes out of the cavities in its head. And as I take that out of my mouth, I go to set it down and he goes, no. He goes, the brain, you have to eat the brain. And so I put that skull in the back of my mouth and my molars crack the skull and the oozy gray matter slides into my mouth. Church, it is not easy to love people like that. <laughs> it is not easy to think about that opportunity to tell them about Jesus and get excited. How many of you know that there are people in our lives, I mean, I don't want to ask you to raise hands and be scary, right? That people that drive you nuts, that get on your nerves, that are annoying and frustrating and selfish, and, and God loves them. Yeah, and you should too. Rizpah didn't just love her boys. The second thing that she did that we can do is that she went to them. Verse 10 says that Rizpah took sackcloth and spread it for herself on a rock. She could have stayed home and wept. In fact, we read nothing about the other mother with five boys. We only read about Rizpah. She could have been like that woman and mourned from a distance, but instead she realized that her love would compel her to move her feet and to be close to her children. She wasn't afraid of the smell. She wasn't afraid of the flies, the decaying corpses that they would attract. She, she went to her sons. And we need to understand that like Rizpah, if we are going to make a difference, we have to be willing to go to the spiritually dead because the spiritually dead do not know they are dead. They don't know that they have a need. I think there's a map of Southeast Asia. This is India and China and a chunk of, and this is a representation. Every red dot signifies a large community of people. I forget what the number is, five or 10,000 people. If it's red, it has zero representation of any kind of Christianity in their lives. Yellow and orange is a little bit, and if it's green, it means that there's a minimum of 2%. 2% is the number that we say is now appropriately reached that they can then reach themselves. 
looking at this map, you have to ask yourself the question, if we are not willing to go, how will it happen? The next picture is simply this. We took a bunch of students. I think it's the Buddhist monk guy. Yep, there he is. We took a bunch of students from Alaska and hiked the Himalayan mountains. Went over 100 miles and visited village upon village. We walk into this village and, and I find this guy sitting on a mat in this little shack on the side of a mountain. As we begin to discuss and talk and work with some of our Christian friends, I discover that this man has literally been sitting in that, in that hut, not village, in that structure, that hut for 23 years because he believes that God will find him in that space and that he can't leave. And let me ask you this question. How does he discover there's a God that loves him if we do not move our feet and walk into his village and sit down and drink tea and tell him, God cares about you. You don't have to sit in this hut to find God. Yeah. Alaska. This is my bit for Alaska. You guys got to know that it's, it's different, right? You've seen the reality TV shows. It's not the same. Okay. Just want to say it gets really cold there. Like negative 55 was the last couple winters ago. It was pretty awesome. Yeah, not cool. All right. Or very cool. I know. I'm horrible. Bad sarcasm. All right. So this is a picture of, of the larger villages in Alaska. There's literally hundreds, hundreds of communities with 30, 40, 100, 300 people. They're only connected by river or by bush plane or by snow machine. There's no roads to drive to these people. There's over 100 of these communities that have zero representation of Christ in the United States. How in the world does this change unless we're willing to go? One of the things that we've been doing over the last three years is we've been raising up graduates and we've been giving them a year of training so that they are able to go and get marketplace jobs in these villages, these tiny little villages. The only cash job, cash economy in these places is as a school teacher. And so we've not just sent one lonely person out there. We've been raising them up as teams and saying, we're going to take over a village. We're going to take over a high school. And your job there is not just to teach school and to help kids learn how to read. It's to establish a house church in these places to help people learn who Jesus is. And it's working. In three years, we pioneered five new communities all on the Kuskokwim River drainage. 26, 20-somethings have walked away from college like good career jobs to be able to go be junior high and high school and elementary teachers in the middle of nowhere with no running water, no toilets, limited electricity because they need to go. The third thing that RISPA did that we need to pay attention to, this is my favorite one, is that she fought for them. How many people have heard that statement, we should be lovers, not fighters? Yeah. Isn't that a lot of garbage? <laughs> I hate that statement. Every time someone says that, I'm like, that is trash. Yeah. How can you love something and not fight for it? We are lovers and fighters. Yeah. We are lovers and fighters, church. That means we get in the fray. If we actually care about something, we don't stand on the sidelines and watch it happen. Good. Think about this mother. It says this in verse 10. She did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. So we're not talking about like a few days. You guys understand, right? This is months. 
She would not let the birds of the air touch the corpses of her boys by day or the wild animals. Now, in Alaska, we have a few animals. We have some big animals. We have animals that like to eat people, right? And I'm thinking like, okay, this makes sense. So in the day, she's got some sticks, vultures come down, she swats them, chases them off, no big deal. But she's literally watching her boys bloat and they will come to the point where their bodies will literally explode and the smell will draw these creatures in. And at night, she has to start a fire and, and have a torch. And as the wolves and the bears and the lions start to come to seek her boys, this little old woman stands there and defends the corpses of her sons. Think of the enormous task. Imagine this woman swinging a stick, beating off wild animals. And then think of the emotional struggle that she's going through as she watches her boys being displayed as trophies. They're decaying in front of her, reminding her of her loss. She sacrificed for her dead. Now imagine with me people with souls, spiritually lost, spiritually dead, decaying in front of us. Are we grieved? Are we pushed to action? Or are we distracted? See, Scripture tells us we must fight for those God loves. We have to stand up in the gap and warn them. We have to hold a stick in the night and defend them from the destructive forces of this world. The last thing Rizba did that we need to pay attention to, guys, and this is probably the most important is she stayed with them. Worship team can come back. Verse 10 says that from the beginning of the harvest to the rain poured down from heaven on the bodies, she stayed. We're not too removed from farming country. If we apply this in our culture and in our world here in Ohio, we know that beginning of the harvest is August, September, right? Rain comes in the spring. And this woman stayed. Doesn't say she pulled up her RV and, you know, hooked up the electric and the internet. It says she stayed. She stayed and made sure that something was going to change for her boys. Let's go back to the text. I'm going to read it to you. Verse 11, it says, And when David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done. David went and took the bones of Saul, sons of his Jonathan, verse 13, and he brought the bones up, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. You see, this woman understood. She didn't know that something could be different. Like she didn't know David was going to do this. She didn't know the end of this story, but she couldn't abide and watch it happen without doing something. And her tenacity of simply staying caught the attention of the king. And when the king heard, 
it caused something to switch in his heart. And a man that tried to kill him, King Saul, and his son Jonathan, who was his friend, who had been basically kept away from the kingdom, kept away from their rightful place, all of a sudden was gathered up. But what's really interesting is that these boys of Rizba, their bones were also gathered up. And this is really unique because Saul and Jonathan had a reason to be gathered because he was the king and the true prince of Israel. But these boys, if you caught it when we were reading, were the sons of a concubine, a prostitute. They were illegitimate sons. They did not belong. They should not have been brought together with the true king and his son. But this woman, she loved her boys. She went to them, she fought for them, and she refused to leave until their position changed. Do you see it? Do you see that this isn't just a really good story for us, but that this is your story and my story? Do you see that what theologians call this is a Christology? It's a moment in scripture where you start to see the messianic principle, where there was a God that loved us, those that were spiritually dead and lost, separated from God. And he loved us so much that he came to earth, Jesus, the son of God. But he didn't just come here to be with us and say, wow, that was a really tough thing he went through. He decided to stay and he fought and he climbed up on a cross. But he didn't get down out of the cross too soon. He stayed on that cross until something changed in our lives. And do you see it? We, we, the illegitimate children of a king, the rebels, those that were conceived in sin, those that rejected God, all of a sudden, because Jesus Christ lived this out for you and for me, allows us to be gathered up and become true children of the king. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. This is our story. We tell our students in Alaska that what God has done in you, he wants to do through you. I want you to, they're going to play in a minute. I'm going to give everyone in this place an opportunity to reflect and take a minute to pray. I'm going to have a, a charge for each of you. But before we do that, I can't stand here before you this morning and not give an opportunity for someone to step into the family of God. I apologize. I don't know this church like I would love to. So my assumption is, is that there might be someone here who's been listening to this message that God might be tugging on your heart saying, I want to rescue your spiritual lost soul. So why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes with me. If you're here this morning and perhaps you've never uh, made a decision to follow Christ, what that means is that you, you recognize that you have sinned and broken God's heart. You've broken relationship with God by, by disobeying him. And you want to step into a right relationship and be restored to God this morning. The Bible says that it's simple. It's not easy. It's not cheap, but it is simple. All that God asks is that we would recognize that we've broken his heart. We've disobeyed. We've sinned. 
wants us to confess those sins and then invite him to be the Lord and the Savior of our lives. And I need to make this clear. We really like him to be our Savior, but it's a both and. He needs to be the Lord, which means he becomes king. And so if you're in this room this morning and perhaps you've known God and walked with him in the past and you're not walking with him now, or perhaps this is the first time you're understanding that God loves you and wants to restore you, if you're here and you want to accept Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior, can you just raise your hands and catch my eye? Is there anyone? Yes. Keep that hand raised. We're going to pray together in a minute. Anyone else? Church, I'm going to ask us to to say this prayer together. If you raised your hand this morning, you need to find the person that brought you or one of these pastors, and they will walk with you into the next steps because this is a momentary decision that changes your life. Repeat after me with me, church. Dear Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I'm sorry I've separated myself from you. I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Come into my heart today. Amen. For the rest of us in this room, my prayer for this service was that there would be people that are challenged to live a life that's differently. That may mean that some of the younger people might end up in Timbuktu, Africa, or up in Alaska, freezing to death, or some of the old people doing the same, right? I'm in that group now. My heart is, is that we wouldn't just change the world, but we would also change North Ridgeville. That it begins in the day-to-day. It's why I'm so excited about the evangelism outreach and the classes that you guys are doing. Like, this is beautiful. So as they sing, my one question for you this morning is to ask the Lord, is there a person in my life that is spiritually lost? Think about it. Meditate on it. It could be a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, a classmate. Is there a person that is spiritually lost? And then ask Jesus to give you an idea of how to love them and go to them and fight for them, that they might have life too. Jesus, we come to you right now, and we just ask that your spirit would move upon us, give us pictures of individuals in our mind and in our heart. And Lord, give us the courage Give us the strength, the determination to live this out.